Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat podcast. Hello, the internet. Hello, subscribers and listeners to the Blue Hat podcast. One half of your hosting duo here, Nick Fillingham. Wendy is unfortunately not with me today. We have just finished. We've just wrapped up Blue Hat October 23, which was October 11th, 12th and 13th of 2023 on the Microsoft campus in Redmond, Washington. It was an incredible three days of keynotes, breakout sessions, lightning talks, hallway conversations, villages, you name it, it was amazing. We recorded every single session and pretty much every single one of them we will be able to publish on our YouTube channel in the next couple of weeks. So look out for those. Today though, very special episode. We couldn't wait. We are bringing you the audio from the day one keynote. The day one keynote was from Microsoft's CVP and security fellow, John Lambert. John is just an incredible human being and uh, an amazing leader, both at Microsoft and in the industry. John's keynote was called What Incidents Can Teach You About Community, Defense, and Yourself. And while it was a you know, there was a visual component. John was presenting from a PowerPoint deck and, and certainly was referencing, you know, some code snippets and screenshots and stuff. John is such an incredible presenter and an amazing storyteller that we know you're going to love listening to his keynote here in the audio only format of a podcast. We will also be publishing the video in the next couple of weeks as well. So make sure you head to our YouTube channel to see John's keynote. We also had Jason Haddix from ButterBot and we had almost 40 presenters across all of our breakout sessions and lightning talks. And, and pretty much every single one of those will be up on YouTube in the next couple of weeks. We also hope to speak with all of our session presenters here on the podcast. So if you were following along at home or even if you went to Blue Hat and you weren't able to see all the sessions or you weren't able to catch any of the sessions, don't worry. All of the recordings or almost all the recordings will be up on YouTube and we're going to bring all of those speakers onto the podcast at some point so you can hear from them and learn from them. Yeah, it's like you were almost there. So enough from me. Please uh, sit back and relax and enjoy the Blue Hat October 23 day one keynote, John Lambert, Corporate Vice President and Security Fellow on what incidents can teach you about community, defense and yourself. I'm John Lambert. It's great to be here with you. It's great to be here in person with you. I wanted to start with a tweet, which is like some number of months ago, somebody on the internet tweeted like, hey, Microsoft people, I hear people stay there 15, 20 years at Microsoft. Like what is going on there? Like what is the deal with that? And then a whole bunch of employees just replied organically with the reasons they stayed. And so I had a question for each of you all in security. So how many of you would say you're not in security, but you're here because you're interested and you're curious, or you maybe been in security, say, just a few years, raise your hand. Okay, so everybody look at them. And first of all, welcome, and we need you. And the question that you have to answer, and, and, and folks find you, ask them this question, why are you interested? What got you interested? And then how many have been in security, say, between five and 10, 12 years? How many would say that's you? Okay, so you all are the veterans. And the question you have to answer is, 
why did you stay in it? What has kept you in security? Other than we're still working on it, but like what has kept you in it? And then who would say, I've been in security more than 15 years, 15, 20, okay, wow, this is, you tell them a blue hat here. You all are the Yodas, okay? <laughs> now, if you're red team, you can be Darth Vader, that's okay too. <laughs> the thing that your question, and find one of those people who have been here in security that long, is what is it that you would say, if we're not careful, we're gonna repeat again? And so that's the question for, for the Yodas here. I have been in security uh, 25 years. Before I tell you what I'm gonna talk about today, I wanna to tell you a little bit about how I got here, which is I actually started at IBM outside of college. And the reason I got into security at IBM was I was the new person. And as the new person, I was a developer. You don't get to pick what you work on as the new person. You get what's left over. And what was left over Security was left over. But for me, like, I just fell in love with it because it's like attack, defense, like the creativity in there, the perfection in there. Like, I was just hooked. Then I came to Microsoft. And shortly after my time at Microsoft, we discovered this thing called vulnerabilities. And the era of Code Red, Blaster, Slammer, Nimda ensued. I spent about 10 years working on code quality in a team called Trustworthy Computing. And then after that, things like Stuxnet, Flame, Dooku ensued. I sort of shifted my career and focused on threat intelligence. And that was the world of WannaCry, NotPetya, SolarWinds, Exchange, you name it. It goes on and on. The thing about this is, I feel like my whole career has been defined by incidents. And if you're a normal engineer and you say, like, how do normal engineers signpost their career? It's stuff like, well, you know, I worked on this product and then I worked on this other version of this product, but in security, like, it's a little different. We're like, do you remember MS-07029? Like, oh yeah, but that was nothing compared to MS-08067. That one was, and I feel like that's how, those CVEs, those big incidents, that is what um, signposts the career in security. And so with that, incidents, I feel like, are a really important part of the security world. And incidents are wonderful in a way because they are a source of truth. If you study what happens in incidents, you will find very profound truths. I always felt like as a security person, it's very important to be grounded and just have reality rubbed in your face because these attacks contain very profound insights. Also for like security people, we know that any day in security could be Monday. And that is part of what it means to be in security. And then with security people, it's like, you know, when an incident happens, they're always green. And it's, the only reason they're red, uh, you know, in, in teams or whatnot is because they're working on another incident already. And so we feel this duty in incidents to respond and try to figure out what's going on. But incidents can be really galvanizing. And I can tell you over and over again, not just at Microsoft, but across our peers, incidents that happen to them awaken the energy of companies. They hire amazing talent after them. They, some of the best defenses and innovations come as things after those incidents. So they're very profound things. Now, the thing about incidents though is you gotta find them. Now, sometimes they just happen to you because security happens. Sometimes they're lurking there underneath the surface and you need to discover them. And I thought what I could do for the first section of this is kind of tell you 
what are some strategies about how to find those incidents that are lurking under the surface from, from my time in security so far? So I'll take you through some concepts in security, give you some approaches and ideas of how to discover things, and then at the end talk about that longevity that comes from a career in security. So let me start with uh, discovery here. So there's this myth that in the attack world, attackers have all the advantages, defenders have to plug every hole, attackers just have to find one way in, and that offense has a much richer arsenal than defense. And certainly if you look on GitHub, I mean, how many command and control frameworks are there on GitHub and recon tools, like there's a ton. And so this is what offense feels like. And what is what do we use for defense to represent defense? The shield. It's like we got one idea. We just get behind this thing and just take the blows and that is the world of defense. But actually what I would argue is that defense has a much richer arsenal at its disposal. This device here, this is a gunshot detector. So this is something that would be deployed around a city and before anybody ever calls 911, people, emergency people can know, hey, something happened over here and, and where maybe and whatnot. And they can respond way before people pick up the phone. This is another favorite one of mine, these steps here. These are called stumble steps. They're put into castles where the invaders have gotten over the castle walls and all these steps are like they're different heights, they're different depths to them and the likelihood is uh, if you're not familiar with them as an invading army, you're gonna stumble up them. So it's meant to advantage the terrain and induce failure here to benefit defense. And just many, many ideas over time. I would say defense is a very creative area I was talking to Casey Smith yesterday and just, he's at Thanks Canary and these are just full of ideas about how to give new ways for defenders to find things. So there's a ton of stuff here and I'll walk through some examples of, of these metaphors here later. Okay, so let me start with some concepts. These are things that may be obvious to you if you've been in security a while, but if you haven't, I feel like once you learn these things, you see the world with new eyes and you see it, you see it forevermore in this way. So in cyber, this is an individual that I feel like we all owe a debt to. He was born in the 1800s, way before cyber, Dr. Edmund Locard. And if you've ever seen, we've all seen these detective shows, when you go, well, who was the first detective? This was the first detective. That was like, he has a principle that's coined after him, Locard's exchange principle. And that is every contact leaves a trace. And that means as the, uh, the perpetrator of a crime, like you're gonna leave forensic evidence. You're gonna break the glass. You're gonna have scrapes, the blood, the this, the, it's gonna be found. And that is evidence and those are facts. And if you find them, you can put those clues together and investigate things. And in cyber, every contact leaves a trace in a log. And this is why part of the world of cyber defense is telemetry, instrumentation, logs, collecting them from all over the network all over the digital estate, because every attacker action is gonna leave a trace in those logs. And if you know how to take an attacker technique, like this one is uh, adding a forwarding rule to somebody's mailbox, because as the attacker, you might wanna get all of their future email that comes to them, or if you're a business email compromise attacker, you may wanna know about any email that has the words wire transfer or something like that in it so that you can go and do that. Well, how do you find somebody adding email forwarding rules? The, as defenders, we need to know how attacker actions transact in the different logs and how to go find that. So every contact leaves a trace in a log. The other thing is 
as an attacker, the way you conduct your attack, like this is, these are the categories from MITRE ATT&CK. Attackers do recon and execution and persistence and lateral movement. Those can exist at many logical layers of a system. And so just because you have the OS instrumented doesn't mean you're going to find everything that's going on because each one of these techniques, you can think of this like a prism. You as an attacker, they could have malware and you go look for strange binaries and strange scripts. But there's also fileless malware that's just living in memory. There's nothing to find on disk. Or maybe it's not running in memory, they're just using built-in operating system or application commands and they're living off the land. All of these attacks can transact many different logical layers. Same with command and control. Like it could be just straight networking stuff, it could run over HTTP. You can use many cloud services to effectively do command and control. So each one of these becomes a logical layer to think about how do attacker actions leave a trace in them and how do you go find them? So if you're not finding incidents, maybe they're happening at a different layer above you or below you where you're trying to defend. One of the most valuable things as defenders is this notion of pivoting. And so here, as defenders, you try to get all of your data that is representing your attack surface and your network, data about devices, data about identity, about applications. And what is really important as a defender is how do you go from one to the other? Because you may have an incident where, hey, malware is found, a backdoor is found on a device, on an endpoint. And how do you find the rest of the intrusion that's going on? How do you know what they're doing? Well, this begins the process of pivoting, where you take, what is that command and control that it's talking to? And then you go to your network logs, and you go, who else is talking to that command and control? And that leads you back to another endpoint you didn't know about, where the attacker is resident and using credentials to go access things in the network, and what they're accessing, which may be an application like email, gives you some sense of what their intent is, and then that tells you why they're there in your network. So this notion of having all these data sources with indices or selectors or pivot points that you can easily join across them and navigate this like a graph, this is a very important concept for all defenders to have and have their data organized this way. Those are some concepts. Now let me get into some techniques about how to, how to help discover things. So normally in the world of threat hunting, I would say this is sort of what threat hunters, this is the world they live in. Like you go learn a taxonomy like MITRE ATT&CK full of techniques, you go read the tweets, you go read the blogs of the latest thing you need to do, and then maybe you write Sigma rules or Yara rules, or you, know, you consume them from others and you go hunt and it's some cycle that involves these things. And I would say there's, that is absolutely part of it, but there's things beyond those existing techniques. And so one is, this is the icon for MITRE ATT&CK, and that's most of MITRE ATT&CK is about stuff happening inside of your network. And what you can do as a defender is, you can also zoom out beyond the castle walls of your network, because attackers are busy before they ever hack you. While they're hacking you, they're busy in other things. And then after they've hacked you, they're taking stuff out of your network. So all of this is their traces and their tracks for you to find and study them when they're outside of just your castle walls. This is the bridge to the world of threat intelligence as well. This is where you're trying to like consume stuff off a of virus total, or I put a lot of feeds there that are the kind of feeds that are available to defenders to go research attackers and their latest techniques. But you can discover them before they're in your network or while they're outside your network. So I would say zoom out. If you're not finding attackers, zoom out.
The next idea I wanted to give defenders is you could take, uh, you could look at these techniques and try to find attackers one by one. So you could take some technique out of MITRE ATT&CK, figure out how to hunt for that, and then go run those results down and just keep going like that and plowing through one technique after another with some scheme to prioritize it. But I also wanted to say, you can also think about hunting more of like a breath-first approach, like a hunting until closure. So let me tell you what I mean by this. So hunting until closure, let me start with an example. So this is an example of the sticky keys attack. Who has heard of the sticky keys attack? Okay, so this is, this is a classic. The idea behind this is you're an attacker, you've compromised a machine, you might lose access. And you don't want to put a backdoor on there like an executable because that may get easily found and eradicated. So by setting a single registry key, if the defender doesn't notice that, you will get back in. And you set this registry key, you set this debugger. And what happens here is, let's say you're the attacker, the defender has found you, they have uh, reset all the credentials in the network that you had. So, you're, but you're still able to get maybe terminal serve to a target machine. Now, you don't know a valid username or password. So how do you get into this thing? Well, in Windows, if you hit the shift key five times, you get the sticky keys thing. But if you set this registry key and configure the debugger for the accessibility apps to be the command prompt, instead of it running under the debugger, you get a command prompt as local system on the login desktop there. And then from there, you can go add an account and you're in. So this is the sticky keys attack. So as, an, as a defender, now you know how they set it, so you can start searching through logs to find out, is anybody doing this to me? Maybe you get a hit where somebody indeed did set the sticky keys attack. Now, did they come in and activate it? Yes, they did. And what did they do once they were in? Well, this, was, this is an example of what an attacker did after they got in. So they invoked sticky keys, logged into the system, the first thing they did is they ran this executable. This is like their malware installer. So this is their custom malware. The next thing they did is this is happening over RDP. And one of the things you can configure in Windows is when you log into Windows, you can get a, um, as an IT pro, you can say, hey, look, this system is for official use only. You know, you can't log, da, 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 da. Well, that's stored in a registry key, that message. These attackers, they don't like those messages. They, those annoy them, so they just delete those registry keys. The next thing this attacker did is installed a bunch of backdoor admin accounts because they want to make sure they have persistence here. This one, this attacker wanted to send spam, so they installed their spammer programs and mined some Bitcoin on the side. So this is what this attacker did in this session. Now, the idea here is each one of these things is some attacker evil that gives you another clue about what to hunt for. So each one of those elements, their malware installer, you can start to hunt for any session within your scope where you see that activity happening, or anybody deleting those uh, legal caption notices. That's kind of odd. That may lead you to new attackers beyond this one, and that begins the next process of spidering, and so on and so, so forth. So each one of these attacker actions gives you another lead to search for, another TTP, and if you begin this process of just iterating, 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 it's like you can work until you exhaust all the pivots and it's, a, and it's a way that you can discover more and more attackers. And so, so that's working to the closure of the pivot. Okay, the next concept uh, or approach I want to talk about is the notion of time travel breach detection. So uh, I talked earlier about the importance of logs. 
if you maintain your logs for a long time, like in a big data system, as a defender, there's this, there's this like quote, I think the NSA said it, but if they didn't say it, they probably meant to say it, which is like the thing they fear the most is a well-managed network with a full network packet capture going on it. And as the moral equivalent of that for logs is a big data system of all your logs, right, that you can go back in time for. So if you want to find an attacker that's already in your network, if you have, let's say, the only thing you have to work with are like what their spear phishing technique looks like, you go, well, that's not going to be super helpful because if they're already in, if they're already persistent, if they're already doing command and control, you don't know what that looks like. How do you find an adversary that's persistent if you don't know what that set of their techniques looks like? But with time travel breach detection, if you keep your logs, you can find some part of their intrusion that's already happened. Maybe it happened 30, 60, or 90 days ago. And you can go back in time and look for the thing you do know how to find and get a hit there. And then from that hit, you can progress forwards in time and find out where do they go after that? What systems have they spread to? And you can also work backwards from that point and figure out how do they get in there? And if you look at this backdrop, this is, again, a miter attack imagery behind it. One of the things about it is some phases in MITRE ATT&CK just have a lot more techniques to them. There's a lot more ways people can do you know, persistence or, or um, command and control than there is credential dumping. The number of ways to dump credentials in Windows is there's a much smaller set of techniques to look for. And you can think for areas in the kill chain where you have a smaller number of techniques, those become like bottlenecks that you can hunt the adversary as they have to go through these bottlenecks in the kill chain. And it gives you a smaller set of things to go investigate, run down, and find. And if you get hits with those, you know that's going to be your breakthrough that you need. Early reconnaissance in internal networks is another thing when they're broadly enumerating users and administrators. So I would say think about where you have these bottlenecks of a smaller number of techniques that they have to use, and those become places that you can really concentrate your detection on and then hopefully get a break there. So let me talk about inducing failure. So I mentioned that with stumble steps earlier. So we operate a bunch of honeypots at Microsoft. We run them in a variety of different cloud providers just to get as many pieces of detail about attackers as we can. And so the idea behind here with one of these honeypots is once an attacker logs in, and in this case, they're doing it in a completely virtual fictional environment where we control every response, they're going to try to download their malware to that system. And so here the attacker is doing this wget to download something. Well, as a defender, you go, great, now we know that that domain is bad. We can go look for any place where that's being used uh, that might be a real system. We can go download that ourselves and you know, write signatures for that. So we start to get this piece of intel. But I tell you, what we'd like to do is get more pieces of intel from the adversary. Okay, you got this domain, what else you got? So because these honeypots are completely fictional, we just lie to them. And we go, wget, yeah, domain, I don't, I don't know, it just didn't work, don't know why. And they're like, just because of the psychology of attackers, like, huh, it didn't work, that's weird. Worked on this other machine, I guess I'll just try my backup domain. And then they'll run another command and try to download that. And we're like, yeah, I don't know why, that just didn't work either, darn. So they're like, huh, well, I guess I'll try another thing. So this is just using psychology against them. They're coughing up more and more intel and more and more indicators to this. Eventually, you gotta let it work. Again, a completely fictional environment, but it's just a way of using psychology against attackers. Another thing that we uh, also have used in our, our honeypots that's an example of moving attackers to 
more favorable terrain for defenders is a lot of the malware they want to bring to a system is going to be like in an archive, like a zip file. They're going to download that and they're going to unpack it and start to use it. There are certain archives that just have more metadata in them. And as a defender, you go, we always love more metadata because it lets us track and link things better. And so the zip file doesn't have as much metadata, but the tar archive, it has like this kind of stuff, users and group stuff that would maybe come from the attacker box or whatever, wherever they did this uh, tarring up. So in this case, when the attacker tries to unzip, we just go, oh yeah, that command is like not installed on this thing. I don't know why. And so they're like, well, I guess I'll have to use tar and tar it up on my system and upload it. And we go, thank you very much. That's perfect for us. <laughs> so these are, again, these are just ideas, but how do you use psychology inducing failure and against an attacker to advantage defense here? Okay, and then I, I spent uh, way more time in my career than I ever expected hunting exploit failures. So this idea here is, Normally, you want to look for success, look for attackers succeeding, but you can also look for them failing. And if you understand how to induce failures like I talked about or take advantage of failures, that's going to give you a clue to something really important that you can try to find. So in this case, this is an example of attacker is exploiting a vulnerability that's a fundamentally fragile process often because you're altering the internal memory state of a program. Uh, a lot of different, a lot of diversity in computers around the world. So the side effect a lot of times is crash. Anybody ever seen this dialogue before? Okay. So those crash reports would come to Microsoft and some of those, a very small number, were actually exploits that failed. And I became for like a couple of years an exploit failure engineer, which I think I was the only one uh, in the world at that time. And the idea here is like, Okay, first you gotta go, why would these things fail? I mean, they wrote these things to succeed. And these were some examples at the time. These were like uh, exploits that were in Metasploit or these other sites like Millworm that were posting uh, proof, proof of concept exploits. You could see this exploit author, he just hard-coded addresses in different versions of Windows. And so if he was running on a slightly different service pack or the victim had a slightly different thing, it just was probably gonna crash. This one says, hey, look, data execute protection. I didn't try to get around that, so it doesn't work with that if you have that turned on. So, okay, good, that's great. This exploit author said, I only tested against the French version of Windows, so your mileage may vary. And, and then at the time, you know, this is the world of x86, 32-bit at the time, but 64-bit Windows was starting to percolate. And so if you run a 32-bit exploit against 64-bit Windows, it's just, it's just not gonna work. So these were reasons we started to discover why things may fail. And the technique that I used here to try to find zero days is one that I, I call bones of the skeleton, which is an attack in the browser, say, is gonna have a certain set of components to it to make the attack work. First, uh, you need a vulnerability, right? In the browser, you, at the time, heap spray was the predominant technique where you'd spray many identical copies of your code in memory hoping the control hijack vulnerability would land on that. So you would have an op sled that hopefully you transferred control to, and that an op sled would eventually land to your shell code. Your shell code starts running. You don't know where you are in memory. You got to figure it out. So these are the pieces. These are like the arm bone, the leg bone, the head bone of the skeleton. And so if you found, and so we'd write signatures for these and start to hunt for those. So if we found like a known vulnerability with a known NOP sled and a known git PC piece of shellcode, but we didn't find it resolving APIs or 
running the payload, we go, hey, there's something new about this exploit. Like it's maybe got a different encoder or a different way it resolves APIs. So that was like just right away, because you only got three bones on the skeleton, you knew that thing had something new for you. And at the same time, if you had all these other exploit techniques, like gonna run shellcode and download stuff, but you don't know what the control hijack is, that means you have an unknown vulnerability. And so that could be a zero day. So this was the techniques. So like NOP sleds, these were some of the things that we would look for. Uh, the NOP sled here, this is just a simple example of the NOP instruction repeated over and over again in a row until it gets to your shell code. But there's a lot of things that could effectively be a NOP sled, like any instruction that is essentially um, doesn't create terminal side effects. Like you could just increment a register over and over again. That's a perfectly valid NOP sled. You could do things that cancel each other out, like push and pop the same register. All of these things are basically equivalent to a NOP sled. And then another one of the bones that was there was this thing called a Git PC, Git program counter. So shellcode would start running. It often had an encoded payload, and it wanted to decode that payload. Uh, it was encoded to protect it. It was encoded also because they typically want to avoid null bytes because Null bytes would terminate strings, and sometimes the exploit wouldn't work if uh, you had early you know, null terminators in there. So they often had encoders. And you got to figure out where is the beginning of that encoded payload so they would have to find their address and memory where they're running. So this is an example of that. This is called the jump to call to pop, where the first thing that starts to run is they run this jump instruction, and they jump to this uh, relative offset of this call. And if you know x86, one of the side effects of a call instruction is to push the return address on the stack. That's what the call instruction does. The return address is just the next instruction. So now the attacker knows this memory address, which was otherwise unknown to them, now is at a very predictable location on the stack, and they're going to pop that into their register EDX. So now they know they know EDX contains the beginning of their shellcode, and they can run this XOR decoder loop. So this is an example of a Git PC. And then, it, then they'd have to resolve APIs. And this would be through navigating like the thre threat environment block, the process environment block. And these would be some of the common APIs that they would invoke to like download a payload from a URL or extract it from an embedded part of a document if this was a Word or Excel exploit. So these were all the things we looked for. And by finding some of those missing bones, you could know there was some other piece of the attack there. The other thing that we found with attackers by doing this is professionals can't help but be professional. You know, it's, it's sort of like when we added a bunch of exploit mitigation techniques over time, this is like address-based layout randomization, structured exception handling, overwrite protection. It was like the good news and bad news was you have to be a professional to write an exploit in Windows at a certain point in time, like starting around 2006, 2007, 2008. Okay, the bad news is you're up against the professionals. And so, but professionals can't help but write professional exploits. And so an example of that was professionals like to handle errors. That, like, if you don't do error handling, that's just amateur code writing. And so this is an example of a technique called an egg hunt where the attacker would get code running, and they would scan memory to find their payload. But you can't just scan memory like linearly because you might hit pages that are not mapped and things like that, and so you'll have an access violation, and as a result, you'll have a crash. And so good exploit writers would scan memory safely. 
And this was one of the techniques they would do it, where they would, before they would touch that memory, they would take the address of that memory and they would call the NT kernel and say, hey, let me just call an NT kernel API because the kernel will always probe that memory to make sure it's mapped. And they used the error of the code that they would get back from the NT kernel API to go, oh, it did the probing for me. I know that that memory is mapped or not, and therefore I know whether to touch it or not. And that's how they avoided access violations. So this is just, this is professionalism. But again, this gives you as a defender, go look for professionally written exploits. And there was a whole set of exploits that used professional, reliable techniques only found in crash dumps coming from the Middle East. And it was some, some specific set of attacker we didn't know at the time. So if you stay on these, th these kind of things, you can try to think about what professional techniques as a defender can you look for as tradecraft. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit about, this is technical stuff. Actually, a lot of things about incidents go way beyond the technical aspects. Part of this is an incident is a crucible where you put a lot of teams together in a very high-pressure situation. And what is really important is you try to you act as one unit as you go through this. And so there's a lot of things I've learned about people and working with teams through incidents, so I thought I would tell you some of those things because I think they're very important. One is that the fastest way to get things done, certainly during an incident, but at any time, is to build trust and have trust with teams. And so you think about how do you work and operate in a way where you build and maintain trust with others. It's a very important thing. I will say you certainly, to build trust, it often, you have to build track record with them. It takes time, but you can speed that by having empathy with the other teams, understanding what they are responsible for, what their world is like, what their pressures are, because of course we know what our pressures are as security, but they have their own pressures too. And that when you have distrust, and I'm sure you can look to any point in your career where you've seen two teams don't trust each other, just know that distrust is very expensive. You put all these controls and processes and accountabilities and blah, blah, blahs in place, but if you can get to a place where you trust each other and you feel like you have their back and they feel like the reverse is true, you can operate with a lot more speed. And part of building trust is, is, I would say, acting like you're always on stage. Sometimes people try to be clever. They're like, hey, this other team is a bozo. They're a joker. And they talk bad about them. They dunk on them, but like, not in front of them, right? Not in team meetings. But the reality is, people are smart and they see through you in two seconds. They know if you really have a beef with a thing, they can tell by your mannerisms and all of that, that you're just not acting authentically. And so you gotta work over time to build that trust so that your inner dialogue and the inner way you feel matches the, way, the outer way that you feel. And I tell people that when they get frustrated working with other teams, and they're like, man, those teams, I don't know why, their values are wrong, and there's something wrong about how they operate. And there's always this like adage where you judge others by their behavior, but you judge yourself by your intent. You're always giving yourself the benefit of the doubt, right? And you're giving that less to others. And so that, that's an error. That's a bias that people naturally have and you have to realize that. So what I tell people when they get frustrated with others is congratulations, which is not what they expect to hear me say, but I say, congratulations. You have just found a problem at your level. Like all that other stuff you do in your job where you feel like pretty good at it, that's actually like pro probably below your level. You know, like you're already good at that. This is a problem that is new and difficult for you and it's at your level. So congratulations, because now you're going to learn something.
And that especially like you have to work, a lot of us get into, you know, engineer or security and people are smart, a lot of smart people out there. The IQ side is strong, but it's important to build an EQ and IQ in equal proportion especially at the senior levels as you go higher. And so I would just say as, as, you, as you're growing, as you see others around you grow, if you're a manager, make sure both of those are, are getting built at senior levels. Because I think the biggest problems at the highest levels are all EQ problems, teaming together, aligning stuff. It's not that we don't have enough smart people. That is not the thing. And these are some tips I've learned about how to work with other teams. So. One is uh, be careful about climbing that ladder of escalation where you start going like, if you feel your blood pressure going up uh, and you're like the self-righteousness is just growing and fueling, like that, there should be like a little red blinking light that's going on saying, hey, 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 you know, like step back, take a breath, assume positive intent. Now, under, now say what happened. Try to come up with your rationale about why you, why you think the other team is acting that way. I think it's super important that everybody own their triggers because that the greater amount of self-righteousness that you feel, you're probably triggered. And when you're triggered, your EQ goes down by 10 points and your IQ goes down by 10 points. So just remember, own your triggers. And if you don't get it, you still don't get why they're acting it, find somebody over there you can trust, ask them to help you interpret it and things like that. There are easy things you can do to build alignment and trust with others. You can share credit. Because remember, if you share credit, now you have two people on stage and just one, and that's a good thing. Send thank you notes to teams. Like, it only takes five minutes to send a note. And so I'll, I'll tell you, if you're, if you're a senior person, if you're one of those veterans or Yodas, and you just take five minutes to send a note to somebody starting off or early, that thing will mean more to them in that day than many of They'll remember that. And I guarantee you, people will remember those things for a long time. At the same time, if you're new or you feel like you're a junior person, you can send a kind note to somebody way more experienced or senior to you because that compliment coming from you as somebody new will mean a lot to them. I mean, they can always get, you know, their VP can say nice things and all of that is great. But as a senior person to hear people that owe them nothing and they're on stage all the time, just having to put it out there and to hear that that matters and it connected and gave somebody energy, that's a very powerful thing. So just remember that you can do that. Okay, and then I wanted to say something about longevity and career here. So, so at Microsoft, we give you these crystals, okay? If you're five years, you get a crystal. 10 years, you get a bigger one, okay? They keep going. So I went to the retirement party of, of a guy named Craig Wittenberg. Been with Microsoft 40 years, okay? If you've ever wondered, what does the 30-year crystal look like at Microsoft? Okay, this is the 30-year crystal. Well, he'd been there 40 years. So we also had the 35-year crystal and the 40-year crystal, okay? So uh, one of the things that, that Craig said, you know, he, he had a lot, of, a lot of parting thoughts and things, but one of the things he said a little bit surprised me because Craig, a pretty staid individual, but one of the things he said was, have more fun. Don't forget to have fun at work. You know, Microsoft, very business-like, a lot of serious problems, critical things, especially in security. But don't forget to have fun. Like he was back, I don't know, in the 80s at Microsoft when they were playing golf in the hallways and smashing holes in the walls. Like he wasn't doing that at the end of his career, but like he was just saying like those times where you have fun and you build that camaraderie. And honestly, I think that's part of the reason a lot of us stay in security. There is the foxhole where you build that camaraderie. 
but just remember to have fun about it. And Tom said something about me going hiking. I would say, find the thing that gives you energy back that is restorative to you and defend it at all costs. Make sure you take the time to do it. There'll always be more work. It's gonna be there. And even though you feel essential, like, you know, I can't possibly take off because of X, Y, and Z, because I'm needed, or things will drop on the floor, or I don't wanna let down the team, take the time off. Because guess what? Reality is if you're a manager and you take time off, your team will do just fine. Like maybe even a little bit better when you're gone. So just embrace that. They might be like, wow, it's a lot quieter around here. We can get stuff done. So the other thing is if you take time off, especially if you're an experienced person, it sets the example that it is okay to take time off. And that role modeling is really important. So do that, find the time to recharge. I learned very early on when I started at IBM, I was like, man, working is great, working all the time. But the problem with that is if you're working all the time, when work sucks, your life sucks. And so make sure you have a healthy balance. I would say focus on your health, like appreciate it, use it while you got it when it's strong and, and keep working on it. And then there was this last quote that really like, maybe it was the pandemic, maybe it was something else, but this kind of clawed into my headspace. And it was this quote that said, every person has two lives. You know, like maybe that's the what comes after security or comes after whatever you're doing. But the reality is the second one begins when we realize we only have one life. So don't waste it, use it. Since I have a four, three, four minutes, I wanted to um, tell you a couple things about community because this is Blue Hat. These are a few stories about community and then I'll conclude. So one is that I talked about, you gotta find these incidents. And so this was solar winds. I spent two months of my life on, on solar winds. And this, I think, unsung hero. So solar winds was like, that happened to a lot of us, but honestly, solar winds had to be found and was found by an analyst at Mandiant who said, why is that happening? That shouldn't happen. And so Hina Parvez was that analyst that looked at a routine alert that came along and said, why is this multi-factor request happening the way that it's happening? That's unusual. That clue, that thread, pulling on that is what helped Mandiant find that incident and break it wide open. So kudos to them and credit to them. Mandiant, because security is a team sport, when they found out about what they were dealing with and realized it, they called people they trusted. They called people at Microsoft, Christopher Glyer, Nick Carr, who ex-Mandiant people, they called Microsoft people they trusted to understand like, hey, look, we're dealing with something. We can't tell you everything, but we need your help. And this is part of the way that security works, that you build these relationships of trust. So even though like this is as high a stake thing that's happening, this is early, obviously any leak of it would be a big thing to deal with. And yet they knew people they trusted and they called them. And, and so these relationships, Charles, et cetera, at Mandy and very important. This is a story by Kim Zetter, which is one of the most amazing journalists in the world of cyber, and we all owe her a debt. She interviewed me for this story, so I was like, hey, mom, I, I got quoted in a story in Wired magazine. You know, like, she doesn't know anything about what I do in cybersecurity, and she's like, great, what was the quote? And I was like, well, Kim quoted me saying, holy uh, I'd say the comms people at Microsoft you know, bless them, they, bless their heart. They, they were like, we need to support this story. Very important to get Microsoft quotes in there. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. I wanna tell you a little anecdote from Blue Hat that I thought was really, was really neat, which was browser mitigation. So you got time travel back to the time where 
JavaScript was important and they started performance of it became even more important, so they started to JIT JavaScript, so compile it to native code. And that was just happening, and Google Chrome did it first, and we were working on that uh, in Chakra, which was our JavaScript engine that we were working on. So I remember being at Blue Hat, and there were two engineers from Google. One was Tavis, and then somebody else who I can't remember. And at the time, there were not really any public exploits for Chrome. And so we were like, have, like, do y'all know about exploit techniques that work in Chrome? Like, what's the landscape look like? And they just looked at us like, oh, yeah. Yeah, totally possible. We're like, ooh, do, do tell. And one of them said, yeah, you can just call a function with a long list of parameters. So I went to Matt Miller, if you know him, and I said, Matt, you know, this is what they said, call a function with a long list of parameters. I don't know, how does that help you write an exploit? And he just like looked at the ceiling for like five seconds and was like, oh yeah, that'll do it. And so <laughs> what Matt's insight was is as an attacker, you know that you're, you can write JavaScript, you know that will get jitted to native code, executable code, but how do you, how do you control the code that's generated? Because you can write JavaScript, but it's gonna jit all kinds of stuff. And so you want maximal control about that. And in x86, if you call a function, this is what underneath the covers calling a function looks like in x86. So like take a, just any function like memsec, got three parameters, okay? One of them is an address, one of them is a constant. The way that that gets translated by the compiler or a jitter is you push the arguments to the function, you call the function, okay? And because like this count here is an immediate, like it's a direct value, it just gets encoded here. And so you can see it, that push of that immediate just gets encoded in the instruction. So what Matt realized was, if you call a function that has a long list of constant D words to it, like imagine you write the function exploit with thousands of parameters in JavaScript, because everybody knows in JavaScript you can do any crazy thing you want, and you pass in all of these different immediate values, the way that that gets jitted is it turns into a sequence of pushes where the push instruction, the push is one byte, and then you have four bytes of that immediate value. So as the attacker, now you can generate code where you control 80% of the code gen, okay? And that will get turned into executable code. And that's certainly enough degrees of freedom for an attacker to work with. And so we worked with the Chakra team just based on that insight from a random conversation at Blue Hat, and we shipped our jitter, we had constant blinding in there to make it so those constants were not predictable to the attacker and some other things. Um, okay, second to last story. So one of the early uh, conferences I went to was called PH Neutral. Anybody ever been to PH Neutral? It was in Berlin. It was put on by Phenolit. Uh, Windows Snyder brought me to PH Neutral to meet security researchers, all in black t-shirts, all on the river. And I went there as Microsoft from the Evil Empire in 2006. And the thing that I remember, part of the reason this is my second time at PH Neutral, FX, legend in the industry as security researcher, we had just implemented ASLR in Windows, address space layout randomization, and we wanted to announce it. And so they were like, where are we gonna announce this? And I said, like, we'll definitely announce it at Black Hat, but the first place we should announce it should be a researcher conference and we pick PH Neutral. So I went there to talk about our uh, implementation of ASLR. And the thing that I remember from this that stuck with me ever since is, you gotta understand, I'm from Microsoft at the time, going to the den of people that have lots of problems with Microsoft. 
And I went up to the front, the room fills up. People in like leaning like on the, on the hallway, people leaning in the window, small venue. And I was like, oh boy, let's see how this is gonna go. It's like they finally got the guy from Microsoft there, you know? <laughs> and FX did this one thing I'll never forget. He came up and he just stood behind me during my presentation. And it was like his way of saying, this person is a guest, they are here to present to us and you will treat them with respect. And I had a really great experience there and I always remembered that gesture that FX did. Okay, and just the last thing, many of you all here are in the security community and we deeply value your contributions. And by working with Microsoft, not only can we help patch and inoculate great parts of our services or the ecosystem, there's a lot of amplification that comes from your work. Because when we fix those vulnerabilities, we can give guidance for them onto the MAP program, which is you know, 70 plus companies that build defenses for customers. And those protections from that vulnerability now go to millions and millions and millions of customers around the world. We build detections for those attacks into our products here and many other vendors do the same. Threat intelligence comes from that. We get cited on threat actors, et cetera. So just thank you for all the work that you do to work with Microsoft on those vulnerabilities. Help us over time, help teams over time improve things. And so I just, with that, thank you for your time. I hope you enjoy the rest of Blue Hat. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat@microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at msftbluehat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.